We're going to be using Zachariah's song, known as the Benedictus, Zachariah's song. And in his song, he helps us to realize and celebrate the, the greatness of the gift that God gives us in Jesus Christ. Zechariah's song is one of the five songs we're using this Advent and calling the ultimate Christmas playlist, these songs that celebrate uh, the coming of Jesus into this world. We've already taken a look at Isaiah's song of prophecy, and then just last week, Josh walked us through uh, Mary's song of praise. And so today will be Zechariah's song of pardon. Um. Two things that we're going to do in our time then together. One is we're going to spend time in the text. And then we'll move to uh, the second part, which will be time with the topic. Time in the text and time with the topic. So let's spend some time in the text. And it might be helpful before we read our text just to remind one another or maybe introduce ourselves for the first time to the uh, background story of Zechariah that we might understand the song he sings a little bit better. So it turns out Zechariah uh, was a priest, and he was married to Elizabeth, who happened to also come from a, the, uh, the tribe of Levi, so that's the priestly tribe, which if you're going to be a priest and you're married to someone that has that background as well, that, that that's a great thing. And here these two are that described as being blameless before the Lord, that these are upright uh, people before God. Now, priests at the time were divided into 24 divisions, and there's a couple of uh, calculations as to how many priests were in each division. One number I found was 750, and another number was 1,000, so somewhere between 18,000 and 24,000 priests among the Jewish people. And some commentators will say that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but they do point out that the priests were uh, required to be there for all of the big feasts in Jerusalem. When there was a big feast, it meant that all the people of God were to come and gather in Jerusalem to celebrate at the temple. So you can imagine with the sacrifices and leading worship that you would need a huge number of priests. And the priests also, then by each division, each division would spend one week in Jerusalem twice a year. And during that week, that particular division of priests would be responsible for all the worship and sacrifices and all the various activities around the temple. So it just happened to occur that, by God's design, this was Zechariah's week to be in Jerusalem. There was one role that a priest could play just once during their life, and they weren't even guaranteed that they would have the opportunity to do it. They casted lots, and sure enough, it fell upon Zechariah. He would have the privilege and the opportunity to go into the holy place. If you've never heard of the design of, of the temple at the time, there, there was the court of the Gentiles. So that was a larger space that, that people who were not Jewish could come and gather. There was the court of women that was inside and closer to the holy place. There was the court of Israel, the court of priests. And then you got into the holy place inside this building. And within the holy place is the holy of holy places. To have the privilege of lighting the incense meant that you got to go into the holy place and, and go up to this little table in front of the curtain of the Holy of Holies and light an incense before God. So this is Zechariah's turn. And Zechariah does this. He just goes forward and he goes up and he finds, though, at this little table 
that there is an angel. It turns out to be the angel Gabriel standing to the right of the table. And the angel Gabriel has words for Zechariah to hear. This isn't our text for the day, but these are the words that the angel spoke to Zechariah. It may be helpful to know that Zechariah and Elizabeth were older in years, and they had yet to have had a child. And so the angel said to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just." to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Can you put yourself in Zechariah's sandals? He's standing there. This privilege of a lifetime. And this angel speaks to him. Zechariah didn't know what to do with it. He, He questioned, how can this be? And the angel responded that that because of Zechariah's doubt in that moment, that Zechariah was going to not be able to speak until the baby was born. And so we move time forward, and indeed, Elizabeth and Zechariah become pregnant. They're they're going to have a child. Uh, The child is born. We arrive on the day of his circumcision. And it says in the Scripture that, that the people were saying that the boy should be called Zechariah after his father. We're not really sure why that is. It doesn't seem to be a custom at the time, but for whatever reason, they seem to be of the mind that the child should be named after Zechariah. And that's when Zechariah provides us with these words, which is our text for this morning. So if you have your Bible, please open it up to Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. Luke 1, 67. Hear the word of God. In John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to redeem and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
May God bless the reading of his word and may God bless us as we come under his word today. Our time in the text is going to take the form of unpacking all these various phrases, just trying to sort them out a little bit and, and that we might understand what Zechariah is conveying in his song. And we'll find that the text actually divides into two parts. So let's look at the first part of the text. This is verses 68 through 75. We might call this part what God has done or, or what God has accomplished. Or alternatively, we could call it God's gift to us. And Zechariah makes it known right at the beginning that God has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation. Now, these were, are words that, that the Jews of his time, that they would understand that this is very much the movement of God. This is what had been talked about through the scriptures and, and, and amongst the, the rabbis. And it was part of, of the learning of God's people. God has visited and redeemed his people, raised up a horn of salvation. That idea of the horn of salvation, to, to raise up a horn is like in a, a bull that would raise up his horns in victory after defeating an opponent. That, that there was also a description of the altar, that there would be these sculptured horns on the corners of the altar, that, that this would be a place of refuge. People could run to these horns if they were accused of something and they would have refuge there at the horn of salvation. And so here comes, already declared, that God has raised up a horn of salvation. You know, in Jewish thought, salvation has the idea of deliverance, the idea that we have been delivered. And with the concept of being delivered, we are delivered from something and into something, from something that's constricting and limiting into something that's expansive and open and allows for opportunity and for life. I've had the opportunity of touring uh, the Dallas Cowboy Stadium a couple of different times. I was with different groups and went in, and, and there's this part of the tour where you're going through the bowels of the building. And even the bowels of the building seem large because they're big and the big hallways and stuff. But when you finally come through this door into the stadium itself, onto the field, and it just explodes open. And you get that feeling of, we were constrained, and now the roof has been raised. There's an openness and an open feeling that takes place. So is the concept of salvation, of deliverance. You probably already noticed that in Zechariah's song, he uses the prophetic future. We've talked about it over the past weeks, and we've talked about it before, that when you're so confident in something that's being done or going to be done, that you speak of it as though it's already accomplished. It's already finished. Zechariah doesn't sing out that God will visit us, or God is about to visit us, and, and about to raise up a horn of salvation. Instead, he declares that God has visited us. And God has raised up a horn of salvation. In other words, Zechariah would want us to know God's work has begun. So consider it done. That's the prophetic future. God was, God's work has begun. So consider it done. And what Zechariah does in his words in this first part, he gives us connection to 
what God has already been doing over all the centuries. That this isn't a new story, but it's, it's attached to what God had already been doing, to the story that God had already been living out. So he gives a little bit of background. That God is raising up a horn of salvation in the house of David that he's spoken about through the prophets. In other words, everything that you've heard about, that God promising David, you know, one from your own line is going to sit on the, on the throne of the kingdom forever and ever and ever. That's happening now. God's making that happen. In fact, it's so happening now that let's consider it's already done. It's the very thing the prophets spoke about. And then he helps us with layering the purposes on, that he describes the purpose of all that's taking place. He says that we should be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us, that he's doing this to show the mercy that he promised to our fathers, that that in doing this, that, that God the Father is remembering his covenant from of old. He's doing it to grant that we might serve him without fear. And in holiness and righteousness all of our days. These words, these concepts, this story is what God had been revealing to his children all throughout the history of the people of God. In other words, like an Instapot, all these flavors, all these promises have been put in. And they've been cooking. And now it's the time. God is making this happen. And we can trust God so much we can talk about it as though it's already done. What God accomplished in Christmas, what God accomplished in Christmas is nothing short of the greatest gift that has ever been given. God accomplished our salvation. Now you might say, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. Doesn't God work that out on the cross? Absolutely. Jesus will die on the cross. Jesus had to die on the cross in order to save us. And Jesus will be raised from the dead. He will leave the tomb empty. But because God accomplishes things when he promises to accomplish them, even here at the birth of Jesus, we trust that it's taken care of. That God in the birth of Christ accomplishes our salvation. Which brings us to then to the second part of the text. This is verses 76 through 79. We could call this regarding John or regarding John and Jesus or regarding John's role and John's message. I like that Zechariah gives a a title uh, to his son, the prophet of the Most High. I I like that he captures those words and and, and he speaks them out to to the people who are there. This message he's received from the the angel and he he speaks this out. The prophet, there were some other options to call his son. They could have called him Camel Hair Johnny. Could have been an option. He was going to grow and wear camel. John the Bug Eater, liked locusts. Sticky Fingers John, that's wild honey. But Zechariah describes the role of his son that he will go before the Lord, that he will prepare his ways, that he will give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, the song of pardon, the the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. You know, we often refer to John as John the baptizer or John the Baptist because John baptized people. And, And we find that discussion in the Gospels that John baptized people 
But here in Zechariah's song, it's not the baptism that draws our attention. This is John the proclaimer. John the declarer. John the one who prepares the way and goes before the Lord. In other words, we take from this that John is not the one. John is not the ultimate gift, but the arrival of the one is imminently at hand. And then we look at John's message. John's message, the second aspect to this second part, the way it's laid out for us is that John's message comes to us because of the tender mercy of God. This work that God is doing is not a work of judgment. This work of God that, that, that he's doing in the world that we can even speak of, that it's already accomplished, it's a work of his tender mercy, his, his loving kindness. Zechariah mentions that the sunrise has visited us on high. Again, a, an expression that they would have known from what we call the Old Testament. Light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death that we might be guide, guided in the way of peace. In other words, God's salvation is at hand. Zechariah's song is a song of salvation, a song of forgiveness, a, a song of pardon, redemption, and deliverance, which is the topic then we'll spend a little time with, time with the topic of salvation. You might have this uh, practice in your house. Maybe it's part of your experience every Christmas. I know a number of families who do this, that they have a nativity scene and that they, they uh, allow the, the bringing out of the different pieces of the nativity scene, you know, the animals or the shepherds or the wise men, they bring them out on different days and they add to the nativity scene. It's a way of walking through the Advent season. And so they build up and they build up and they come to that time where they place the baby in the manger on Christmas Day. Do you know that when we place the baby in the manger, we place salvation in the manger? That's Zachariah's song. That when we place the baby in the manger, when Jesus comes into this world, God is declaring salvation. Yes, we'll need the cross. We'll need Good Friday. Yes, we look toward Easter. Yes, that's, that's the good work of, of the atonement. But even as the baby comes, we celebrate the salvation that God has brought into this world. When was the last time you were in peril? The last time you were in peril. We were just talking over here about, even this past week, about having to take tests. Maybe that's when you felt you were in peril. That, that time when you had to take a test and, and, and you spoke out and, and, and you knew that you were in peril and you wanted God to show up. Sometimes we're in a peril where we call out for help. God, would you help me? Would you help bring to my mind the things I need to know for this? I want to get a good grade. I don't want to be ruled by anxiety. God, would you show up and help me even in this moment? Maybe the last time you were in peril was because either you or someone you loved needed healing. You were suffering. You, you had some kind of injury or, or hurt. Maybe a diagnosis came your way. Maybe there was a deep sense of loss and you wanted healing. This was your peril. God, would you come? Would you heal me? Maybe you wanted deliverance. You were in a situation that was tough and hard and, and was eroding confidence and, and tearing at your very soul and, and it was just hard to breathe or hard to live life. And you pray out, God, would you deliver me from this situation? 
Maybe it was a situation where you wanted God to provide. Lord, my resources are low. I do not know where to turn. Would you provide? We take all these together. We could, we could say it in just this one word. God, would you save? I'm in this situation and I need salvation from this situation. Our God is the God that listens. It just so happens, though, that in Jesus Christ, he was answering the biggest prayer of, God, of all that any of us could pray for. God, would you make the way possible for me to be in an intimate full, eternal relationship with you. God's ultimate Christmas gift is life-changing, life-redefining, life-freeing salvation. Maybe some in this room have had that experience where you've lived in one community and that community became intolerable for you. That you had a sense of that there were no options that maybe even some of the relationships you had in that community had become toxic and you felt constrained. You felt as though life were limited for you. And so you made that decision, I'm going to move, I'm going to move into a new place, into a new community. And all of a sudden you feel like this, there's open expanse, this, this opening that takes place, a new opportunity to grow and, and to thrive. we find that in the gift of Jesus Christ, that in God's salvation, we are delivered from darkness into light, from judgment into forgiveness, from sin into righteousness, and to the very way and heart of God. You might say, well, Bob, you're a pastor, and that just sounds like a bunch of spiritual hyperbole. It turns out from the Bible that God's salvation is meant to be claimed and lived. God's salvation in Jesus Christ is meant to be claimed and lived. Let's take a look at what that looks like. Well, first we're going to understand that God's salvation brings you into a new relationship. God's salvation brings you into a new relationship. We're told about it in Scripture that a person who is, follows Jesus Christ is God's chosen one, holy and beloved, that speaks of relationship, that there is this divine being, the creator of all things, the one whose hand has been on history throughout every century, and in the time and place of, that was full of his wisdom and insight, he brought Jesus Christ, that those who would follow him would have this new identity, God's chosen ones holy and beloved. He goes on to say that in Scripture in another place where once we were not a people and now we are a people, so not only do we get a relationship with the living God, but we get a relationship with each other. This is the good news that comes with this teaching. You are known. You are known. And you are loved. And you are secure in and through the relationship that you have with God. And so our response is to claim that relationship. To claim it and say, that's who I am. 
I'm in this relationship. I, I have one who loves me. I have the divine God, the God over all things. That God loves me, and I am secure in him. We also find out God's salvation gives us a new identity, a new identity. The Bible declares you to be, in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God. For you to be his daughter, his son, that we're no longer slaves, but we are heirs to the kingdom of heaven. In other words, your identity is not determined by the number of times people smash the like button. That our identity is not determined by how many times people repost or retweet what we post or tweet. We're not defined by how many people choose to follow us. Even more, our identity is not determined by our performance or our failures. God's salvation gives you a new eternal eternal identity. An identity, a salvation that we are to claim even today. Thirdly, God's salvation gives you a new life, a new life. The Bible says we were once dead, but in Jesus Christ we are made alive, that we are saved in this life to do good works, that we have a life of work to do to God's glory. In fact, that that life of work that God has for us, it's the way we work out our salvation, the salvation granted to us, and we, we work that out in this world, in this life that God has given to us. You know, there are dark competitors to this life that God gives us. Competitors like comfort or entertainment or transient security or winning. By the way, those things aren't bad in, in and of themselves. Winning's not bad. Security through good financial practices isn't bad. Nor is entertainment or comfort until they become the focus of our life. When our life is given, in fact, when our decisions are made simply based on our desire for comfort or for transient security or for winning, that's when they corrupt. But God's salvation gives us the new life. You know, you figure all the catalogs that we get in, in our mailboxes this time of year, uh, that just they're all screaming for us to give our attention, our life, our decisions to the other things. In fact, on my Instagram account, I've clicked on these before where there's some kind of a, a shopping opportunity and, it, and the algorithm pays attention to what I do. So now, like every third post on my Instagram account is from some outdoor gear company. Gotta have the gear. And they're always being put, choose me, choose me, shop now. Here's what Jesus provided. John 10, 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God's salvation gives new life. Let's claim and live the new life he's given us. And finally, God's salvation gives a new purpose that we have now through Jesus Christ, through the horn of our salvation, through, through the one who is victorious, through the baby in the manger, we are now salt and light. This is our purpose. We are witnesses. We are lovers of others. We are to pursue justice and righteousness in this world, to make disciples, to build up the body of Christ. All other jobs, 
are penultimate at best. They are next to ultimate. They, they can't get to the ultimate stage. So it might be a good thing that we're engineers and teachers and nurses and students and athletes and spouses and parents and children and pastors, but those are penultimate at best. God's salvation gives us new purpose, and ours is to claim and to pursue those purposes that he has given us. Zechariah's song helps us realize the greatness of God's gift in Jesus Christ. Christmas is way more than just a well-decorated season. Zechariah's song proclaims Christmas's theme of salvation. Relationship, identity, life, purpose, and invites us to celebrate God's gift of salvation that comes to us in Jesus Christ. To declare Christ is born is to proclaim salvation has come. What God has begun, let us consider done.